Good morning. I'd ask that you would take God's Word in your hand and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. As you're turning there, what a what an incredible weekend. How many uh, got to be a part of that Eagles game uh, this weekend? Wow, I had no idea that that many of you watched the Boston College Eagles beat Wake Forest, but I'll tell you, it was a great game, 24-21, and uh, it was pretty awesome. Was there another Eagles game this weekend? Was there? All right, Fairweather fans. No matter what happens next week, uh, make sure that you're back back in church on Sunday. Uh, Don't allow your uh, pitying or your partying to uh, keep you from the Lord's house uh, next Sunday. Uh, Good luck uh, to all that are a part of, if you don't know, Aurora Christian uh, is uh, heading downstate. Uh, So uh, we're excited uh, for them. Yeah. If they need a uh, warm-up game Thursday, uh, we have the Turkey Bowl, and uh, we don't do the run and gun, we do the walk and talk offense, and uh, if you want to be a part of that, I can't remember what time it starts, but over at the school around, I think, 8.30 or or so, uh, we do that because our wives kick us out of the house so they can watch the Macy's Parade and uh, get the food ready, so... Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We are in a series that we have entitled uh, The Amazing Change. And uh, we uh, finish this up uh, next week as uh, uh, then we'll be uh, focusing the month of December, uh, focusing on uh, the uh, time of Christmas. And we'll be looking at uh, the Christmas story uh, for the whole month of December uh, as we prepare ourselves for the coming uh, of Christ uh, to Bethlehem. Acts chapter 9, uh, we're going to start in verse 17 and go through verse uh, 23 this morning. So if you would stand as we read together and get into our text this morning, this is what the word of the Lord says. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Uh, Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Verse 20 says, At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you yet again to ask for your blessing over your word this morning. Father, empower me to speak with clarity the words that you would have for us. Father, I pray that we, just as Saul was, that we would be transformed. That we would uh, have the opportunity uh, to see you in all your glory. And as a result of what we see here today and what we are a part of, that it will move us and change us. Uh, to be more like your son. But Lord, also that we would be like Saul, who immediately at once went and began to preach uh, the gospel that you had given him. Father, during this time of the holiday season, uh, where it seems that people uh, are more attracted now than ever before to uh, your word and, and the story of Christmas, That, Lord, we would be people who would, uh, has already been shared, that we would go and uh, declare your praises, declare your story to all who will hear it. Father, we need your strength, we need your empowerment to do it, and we need your word to be our example. So, Lord, we go to it now, and we ask for your blessing once again, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Seven weeks into this series, The Amazing Change. Why would we look at the life change of a man uh, by the name of Saul? Why would we uh, spend so many weeks looking at one man's conversion experience? 
I believe Paul answers that question later on in his writings to a young disciple named Timothy when he says in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, let's see here what I had written down, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17, listen to what he says, I just want you to hear it. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to this service. Even though once I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. For that very reason, I was shown mercy. Listen to what he says. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example. Another text or another translation says as a pattern for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. The reason why we look at Acts chapter nine, the reason why we spend so much time Focusing in on Saul's conversion is Saul says my conversion is an example. It is a pattern by which we can realize that none of us are too far away from God to ever receive salvation of sin. We're never uh, too far enough to uh, have Jesus Christ impact our lives in a way that would bring us to the saving knowledge of Christ the Savior. This is an example. This is what we are called to look at when we want to understand what Christ can do in the life of an individual when it's given over fully to Him. Now we've talked about uh, throughout this series many different things. We've talked about how we have messed up our lives as a result of sin and we have a flawed standing as a result. We've seen what Christ can do when we place our faith and trust in Christ as our Savior. We see the amazing things that Christ does as a result of uh, the salvation that takes place. We see that the importance of prayer in in the life of a Christian. We see the importance of being spirit-filled as a Christian. We talked about being faithful in our service to Christ as a believer. And then last week we talked about the importance of fellowshipping with one another as Christians uh, in ongoing uh, community. But we're going to do two more things because this is the part of the series where we talk about what Paul does or what Saul does uh, after he's come to know Christ. There are two things that uh, Saul was called to. Remember what uh, Jesus shares with Ananias in the vision. The, The vision declares that Saul would go and he would be a great mouthpiece for Christ to the Gentiles. And he says two things. Number one, he's going to share the gospel He's going to share the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about this week. And next week, we'll learn the second part of his twofold ministry, and that is to suffer for the gospel. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about if that's what God has called you to, that you had a twofold ministry when it came to your walk with Jesus Christ. You're going to share Christ to all that you can, and number two, you're going to suffer for it. If that was what we were called to, I'm not sure we would have a church as full as we do today. That our job, our focus was to share Christ and to suffer for Him. Think about that for a moment. Is that something you're willing to do? Is that something that you have a desire to be a part of? It seems as we look at Paul's life later on, is that that's what he desired He would speak about giving all that he had, running the race that was set before him, sharing uh, to anyone and to everyone the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he would also say, I feel like I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He would talk about in in one of the chapters in the uh, book of Acts, the um, uh, amazing things that would transpire, the, the struggles that he would have. He would even be tormented, the Bible says, by a messenger of the devil, a thorn in the flesh that would hinder him and cause him great pain as a result of the gospel work that he was a part of. So we look at this and we see what Paul was called to, to share the gospel. Now, Luke never records in Acts chapter 9 the call for Paul to share the gospel. 
Nowhere in the text does it say that Jesus said to Saul or to Paul, you need to go and declare the gospel. But in verse 20, it tells us that at once he went and preached in the synagogues. Now, we don't know how he understood it. Maybe it was Ananias that told him. Remember, in Ananias' vision, it is shared that he's going to be the mouthpiece. Ananias is told that this Saul, this one that hated Christianity, hated Jesus Christ, would be the one who would take the message of Christ to Gentiles and even stand before kings and those in authority and declare the gospel message. So we don't know how he finds out, but we know he knows. And we understand that Paul doesn't just sit there and, and kind of think through and process through the, well, should I go or shouldn't I go? Uh, what does this do for my future? What does this do as my standing as a Pharisee? This is where life change takes place. Because the moment life change happened in Saul's life, he flipped the switch. And he says, now it is my time to go and tell the world the goodness of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been a part of something so great? Have you ever been a part of something so wonderful? I'm having a microphone problem today. This thing keeps... Ever been a part of something so great, so wonderful, that uh, you, you find yourself wanting to tell everyone about it? Uh, we were uh, up in uh, the Wisconsin Dells uh, Thursday through uh, yesterday, and uh, my, my two older boys are old enough to really enjoy the water park that we were a part of. And uh, my parents went, my brother and his family went. We were celebrating a whole bunch of uh, birthdays up there. And I remember the first time my boys came back from uh, playing on one of the water rides, they came running to my dad and they said, Papa, Papa, man, we got to tell you something. Yeah, this ride was so awesome. This was so so great you you gotta you gotta come you gotta be a part of it why did they have that response because they had experienced something awesome they had experienced something that they wanted everybody to experience because it brought them great joy it brought them great excitement well isn't that what we're called to as christians when we experience the goodness and the greatness of jesus christ Shouldn't we be like my boys who go around to anybody and say, hey, will you listen? There's great things that I have to share with you, exciting things about this person named Jesus Christ. You have to experience it. You have to be a part of it. And just like my boys, that should be our one desire. You should have seen them. They beeline to the one who hadn't experienced it and declared the goodness of it. Peter tells uh, the Christians that we are to declare the praises. The idea there in that phrase, one commentary says, is to announce the greatness, to speak of the awesome praises of God. Why? Because he called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. That is the job that we have before us. We are saved not just so that God can save us and, and then take us to heaven, but we are saved so that we can go and share the gospel with all who are around. That's what it says Saul did. At once he went preaching and declared the gospel. Well, before we even get to our outline, I want to give you just a couple things in regards to this idea of evangelism. And the first thing we need to understand is the definition of it. To find the best definition, I looked around to different places, and the one that I found that best fit uh, was this one from the Luzon Conference uh, that was done on, on evangelism, world evangelism. And this is what it said, just listen. To evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. And that as the reigning Lord, he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gifts of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. What are we to do? We are to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again and now offers us eternal life through his Son. That's evangelism. That's what they articulate. A better, if you like, uh, not a better, but a more simpler definition, D.T. Niles put it this way and was made famous as a result of it, that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. For those who like it a little more succinct, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. 
Carl Henry spoke about this idea of evangelism when he said, the prime need of the church in these times is a new sense of its proper task of evangelism. And yet sadly, the church thinks that evangelism is only for the super saints. Only those who have an outgoing personality and especially those who find themselves as pastors or elders or teachers in the church. But T.R. Glover wrote this, witnessing is the work of the whole church in the whole world throughout the whole age. It's for all of us. Well, how are we to do evangelism? Quite quickly, it, it tells us uh, uh, David Larson in his book, The Evangelism Mandate, says there are five ways that we can do evangelism. Personal evangelism, write these down in your outline somewhere. These are good to know. Personal evangelism. The second one that we see, uh, of course, personal is easy. That's individual evangelism. You sharing uh, your faith with someone else. The second one is parish evangelism. That's the whole church a parish is, uh, if you're from a Roman Catholic or maybe even a Lutheran background, you would know that parish speaks of our church community, and that is that we can have a corporate evangelism strategy. There are parachurch evangelism strategies and, and ways of, of reaching, and of course we see that with Campus Crusade, we see that with InterVarsity, we see that with many, many other non-church or parachurch organizations that reach out. We have planting evangelism. That is where an individual goes and, and plants himself in a community and begins to uh, share the good news of Jesus Christ with the desire and the hope that a church would be founded as a result of that. We see a lot of planting evangelism that takes place in the book of Acts. And finally, pulpit evangelism. Billy Graham made this fa uh, quite uh, famous. Uh, many others, Billy Sunday and, and others like that, who would stand behind pulpits and declare that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Now, if that's the case, if there are so many different ways that we can evangelize, why is it that it seems that we as the church find ourselves so limited in our impact when it comes to evangelism? What is it that's keeping us from doing what has already been uh, declared that we have missed our primary goal of evangelism when it comes to the church? Is it that we don't have the giftedness to be able to do it? We just don't have enough evangelists in this church. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the lack of opportunities. We just haven't been given the opportunities. We haven't been pointed in the right direction of where we need to reach out to people. Uh, maybe it's a lack of training. Evangelism takes training. We need to know what we should say and when we should say it. We need to articulate what verses are important to articulate to the individual and how to lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Maybe it's that lack of training. Or maybe it is that everybody's already saved. That could be. Maybe everybody's already got the gospel. Maybe everybody already understands what it means. It's none of that. None of those things. We are gifted. We have a, a, a bevy of opportunities we don't need much training when it comes to evangelism. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Do you think he went to school for that? No, it's, a la it's not lack of training. And of course we know not everybody is saved. Far from it. So what is it? It is because we lack passion for the things that Christ was so passionate about. Remember, Jesus Christ came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did Christ come into the world? To evangelize. And if that is our Savior's goal, if that is our Savior's desire, shouldn't that be our desire as well? Why is it that we don't do that? Well, R.B. Kuyper, about a hundred years ago, wrote a thesis on this idea of evangelism and why in America it has not found its place. He says, we have lost our right view of God. We've lost our right view of God. In what ways does he, he goes on to say that as Christians, we've lost the right view of his word. What that means is, is that God's written a book. And what God has written in that book is completely true. And what God has written in that book is what he desires. And so when God says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, we should take him on his word and say that is where Christ is most passionate about seeing sinners come to the saving knowledge of him through the gospel that he's given us. The second thing Kuiper would say is that uh, we have forgotten or we have lost the right view of God's holiness 
The idea there is that God's word has articulated the first principle we must understand in evangelism. God is completely holy. He's set apart. He has a standard uh, that uh, only he has been able to attain and to have. But that runs into the second problem, and that is the right view of man, Kuiper says, and that is that we are completely sinful. And if we lose that view, if we don't understand that God is completely holy and set apart and understand that we are completely sinful, and as a result of that, find ourselves missing the mark of holiness, finding ourselves falling short of the glory of God, then we will never understand our need for salvation. If we don't think God's holy, that he'll accept us however we are, or we begin to think that we're better than who we, uh, than who we truly are, then we miss out on what evangelism is all about. The fourth thing that he would say is that we've forgotten or have lost sight that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. When we begin to think that there's other ways, that either good works or through other faiths, that because of our ignorance, God will look at us and have mercy on us and say, oh, I'm sorry uh, that you didn't see that it was Jesus, but that's okay. Today is your lucky day because it was all of the above. That's what it was. So come on in. I know it sounded like those Christians had a corner on the truth, but really it was all of them. Just You just had to have a little joy in your heart and, and want to get to heaven, and, and that's what it was. Well, we know that's not the case because we know that without Christ, no one can be saved. Without the gospel, no one will see eternal life. The final thing that he said that we should remember that will help build our passion is we must realize that heaven and hell are real. We've lost view. Is it because we just find ourselves living life that we begin to think that, you know, maybe that's not true. That goes back to that God's word is true. When he says there's a hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there's eternal torment, where uh, a place where people will find themselves in excruciating pain and suffering and, and completely separated from all that is good and all that is of God. When we forget that, then we begin to look at our neighbors and say, they're okay. We begin to look at our family members across the Thanksgiving table and we say, it's all right. Maybe they don't see eye to eye uh, when it comes to my religion today, but that's okay. Again, in the end, we'll get up to heaven. It will be all of the above. And yet, we don't believe that. In fact, we're called evangelicals. We base our beliefs on this idea of God's word and, and who God is and who Christ is and that there are, a, a, there are places called heaven and hell and they are real and they are true. But notice what, uh, uh, let's see here, what's his name? Robert Munger said this of uh, evangelism. I went too far. I looked at that and I should have looked at my notes. This is what C. G. Campbell Morgan says first about it. He says, to call a man an evangelical who is not evangelistic is an utter contradiction. You know, uh, I've kind of liked that uh, when CNN uh, talks about us, they talk about us as evangelicals. That's kind of nice. It's a nice label. And of course, we want to be those who are known for our evangelism. But Morgan said, if, if we call ourselves evangelicals and we never evangelize, it's like me calling myself a preacher and never preaching. Me walking around and saying, yeah, well, I'm, I'm a preacher. Well, when did you preach? Never. It's like saying that uh, you, you play football and, and have never played it. It's a contradiction. In fact, it's a lie. If we want to call ourselves evangelicals, if we want to say we're a part of an evangelical church, then evangelism should have a key focus in all that we do. Why is it a contradiction? Munger says this, evangelism is the spontaneous overflow of a glad and free heart in Jesus Christ. Why is it a contradiction? Because if we say that Christ has changed us, if we say that Christ has done all that he's done, then shouldn't we have this deep desire to tell people about it? Let me ask you this. If you were talking with me out in the foyer and uh, the conversation turns uh, to talk about my wife, Amanda, and they say, Tim, tell me uh, about Amanda. I, I don't know her very well. Tell me a little bit about her. And I said, I have nothing really to say about her. Um, she, she's Amanda and uh, got uh, brown curly hair and about five foot four. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all I really have to say. What would you say? This guy's got a problem with his wife. Does this guy really love his wife as, as, as he should? 
And yet, what happens at the office workplace? What happens in our schools? What happens when uh, someone says, hey, you go to church. Hey, I see you carry a Bible. Tell me about Jesus. Well, you know, uh, Jesus is a good man. He taught a lot of good things. And, and for me, it works a lot. Um, you know, I would even call him my savior. And we find ourselves hedging. And yet Munger says, it is the spontaneous overflow. We can't contain the excitement that we have about Jesus. So what do we do? We go and we tell everybody. It's like my boys at the water park. Find me someone who will listen so I can tell them what I've experienced. When was the last time you had that kind of passion when it came to evangelism? Why do I bring all that up? Because that's what Paul does. He comes to know Christ and it says at once, another translation says immediately, he goes and preaches the gospel. Well, how are we to get there? How are we to make that a reality? There are three things we must do. Number one this morning, number one is that we uh, must meet God's proclamation criteria. If we want to have that kind of passion, if we want to overflow with uh, the goodness of God and that is seen in our salvation, we must uh, find ourselves meeting God's proclamation criteria. Now, there are uh, some different criterias uh, that are there uh, for us. If we want to be a gospel messenger, if you want to be like Paul and say, I want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all those around, then there are some things that must take place. Number one, for you to be a gospel messenger, you must have experienced salvation. You must have experienced salvation. Now, there are a lot of people out there today who want to talk about life change. You turn on the TV, whether it's Oprah, whether it's uh, other talk show hosts, uh, whether it's uh, people uh, that have found life change in the physical uh, transformation business, it would seem that everybody is looking to uh, advertise their methods of life change. And so we are one among many who participates in this battle of trying to get people to be a part of a certain kind of life change. But for us to articulate that, for us to be the ones who will be that messenger, we must experience it first. I got to tell you something about uh, uh, the water park experience. I went on this ride uh, called the Hurricane, okay? How many have ever been up to the wilderness and uh, ridden the Hurricane? You know what I'm talking about, right? The Hurricane is an incredible ride. How many would say amen to that? It's an amazing ride. How many of you don't have a clue of what I'm talking about? Okay, my point exactly. If you haven't experienced it, you're going to have a hard time explaining it. Now, I could have a person after person come up who's been a part of the hurricane ride up at the wilderness, and I can also have people that come up that uh, have never been a part of it. And I can tell you, I can assure you, the effectiveness of that testimony of the one who's never been on it will be quite boring, and uh, it will do absolutely nothing for you. It won't give you the idea of what you feel. It won't give you the idea of what uh, uh, hills and, and climbs you're a part of in that thing and what dives take place and, and what is at the culmination of this incredible water slide. You wouldn't be a part of any of that. Just like that, we can't talk life change unless we've experienced the life change that only Jesus Christ can bring. Now, Saul knew about Christianity. Saul knew a ton about Christianity. Saul probably knew more about Christianity than many in this room even before he came to know Jesus Christ. He could have written a book about Christianity. Remember, that was his uh, goal and desire. It was to stop this religion, to stop this uh, movement of people that were attracted to this man named Jesus. He could have talked about it at hour's length. But what happens? He doesn't know it. He doesn't know it because he's never experienced it. And so what happens when that light comes on the road to Damascus? He's changed and once and for all he experiences this salvation that he had only read about. He had only heard about. To be able to be a gospel messenger, you have to experience it. Second, you have to be willing and ready to serve. You have to be ready and willing to serve. 
Once you've come to know Christ, the first criteria that you must uh, be able to meet is that you must be ready to serve. Look at what the text says uh, in verse uh, 20. It says, after uh, spending several days with the disciples, it says that at once Saul began to preach in the synagogues. This phrase at once in the NIV or in the NAS immediately is a phrase that is seen in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, more than 30, uh, more than 35 times. Now, why would it be such a significant part of the gospel of Mark? Well, we know that Mark wrote about Jesus being the servant. And so to declare what it was that Jesus was the servant was this idea that as the father led, Jesus would at once immediately go to that place and do as the father's will had, had directed to. And so we see this picture of this obedience that takes place. It happens at once. You know, obedience is an amazing thing. Obedience is hinged on our willingness and our readiness to serve. Getting ready this morning uh, in the Bedal house is all about obedience. It's all about doing uh, what mom and dad say. And we, we struggled uh, earlier this morning uh, with uh, the difficulty of having a son who wasn't ready and willing to serve. What is his service to us? I'm learning as a parent that children have one commandment in the Bible, obey. That's it. Teenagers on down, the only job you have in life, according to God, obey. Sorry. That's what you got. Obey. And my, my, my sons don't have a willingness and a readiness to obey. But then I began to think about that as I was uh, working through the, the final elements of my message and thinking, oh, they're just like their dad. They're not ready to obey because I'm not ready to obey. When God tells me to go share with a, a person who's never heard the gospel, and, and, and if you will, as Scott has said, turns that spiritual pager on and, and begins to feel that vibration or that beeping going off, I sit there and say, you know what? Eh, I don't want to offend them. Or you know what? Uh, I don't have a lot of time. Look at what time it is. I, I've got places to go, people to see. And just like my boys getting ready for church, I find myself unwilling to serve because I'm not ready. It's not the right time. It's not the right place. I don't have the right tools. I don't have uh, what I need to accomplish what God may be calling me to. Not true with Saul. At once, immediately, he goes and does it. How we would be a different people if we responded as Paul did. At once, immediately. My wife had to tell my son seven times to get into the car today. Seven times. You know what his response was? The seventh time? Oh, I, I didn't understand. <laughs> How we are like a six-year-old when God says, go share the good news of my son with that person. And he says it over and over and over again, and our response is, oh, I didn't understand. And yet we did. We were unwilling to serve. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, that we are to be watchful and prayerful. For what? That the door of opportunity may be made open for our message. You want to be ready to serve? You want to be willing to serve at a moment's notice? Then you be watchful, meaning keep an eye on opportunities around you. You say, when there's no opportunities that lay themselves before you, you're not watching. You walking through a life amongst sinners around you in every facet of your life, and you're saying there's no opportunities to tell dead people who are on their way to hell that Jesus Christ is their only way? Are you kidding me? We've got all the opportunities in the world, but our eyes are closed. He says, be watchful and be prayerful. Lord, give me eyes to see it. Remember, Jesus looks out to the fields and he says, they're white with harvest. Do you think the disciples looked and said, what is he talking about? Uh, it's, why, why is he focused in on the crops? There's, there's not much there. What is he talking about? Jesus had the spiritual eyes to see. He wasn't talking about the crops. He was talking about the world of sinners 
who are ready to receive him as their savior. Be watchful and prayerful. The next thing we need to understand is that uh, we must know the scriptures. We must know the scriptures. Now, in the text, it doesn't articulate this per se, but you would say Paul uh, or Saul has uh, been saved just a couple of days, just a few days. He shouldn't be sharing the gospel with anybody. There are some of us today that find ourselves at that place. We say, you know what? I'm just not ready yet to share the gospel. I need to know the scriptures better and better. And there's some truth to that. That we do need to know the scriptures because we can't just uh, sell uh, an experience, but we have to be able to sell the rational and the logical truth of the gospel. But this is what we know. Why was Paul able to do that so quickly? It was because he was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament probably as good as any Christian that was around in Damascus. And so that knowledge of being a Pharisee allowed him uh, to be able to as soon as he saw Jesus, to have everything open up. All the prophets, all the patriarchs that pointed to this coming Messiah, the moment I believe that uh, he looks up and he hears the voice of Jesus, speculation, I know, but I believe with all my heart that it clicked for Paul. That, that was it. Jesus is the Messiah. All that I've been doing against him has been fighting the promised one. And I was a part of helping put him to death. I was the one who would have been announcing crucify him, crucify him in Jerusalem during that week of Passover. We have to know the scriptures. Notice what it says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 3 for a moment. Turn in your Bibles if you're in the book of Acts to the right. You're going to go through the books of Romans and the Corinthian books, First and Second Corinthians. Then you're going to go through uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And then you're going to uh, get to First and Second Thessalonians, and then First and Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter three. Notice what Paul tells this young disciple. He says in Second Timothy chapter three, verses fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, he articulates this truth. But as for you. Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Because you know those whom you've learned it. Now notice what he says. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for what? Salvation. Why do we need to know the Scriptures? Because it is the Scripture that makes us wise for salvation. Now notice what he says. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, verse 17 says, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says a couple things in this text. He says, you, you want to know how to be wise for salvation, meaning, number one, do you want to know how to come to know Christ? Read the book. If you want to know how to share uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone, read the book. If you want to be able to uh, share Christ in many different ways, rebuke, correct, train in righteousness, you've got to read the book. The reason why many times we don't evangelize is because we don't understand what we should be articulating. We remember what we were taught years ago when we came to know Christ and we've left it there, which I'll talk about in a moment. But we have to know the word of God. We have to know it. There are people here that can cite stat after stat after stat when it comes to a professional sports team because they're passionate about them, because they love them. They know who plays where and how many years he's played there and what he makes in his contract. And yet there are those same people who say they love Jesus and don't know a lick about what Jesus wrote in his love letter to us. And it's sad. We need to know the Scriptures that make us wise for salvation. The next thing we need to understand is we, know, we need to know what we are going to say. We need to know what we're going to say. It says, at once, Saul heads out to the synagogues and he preaches. What was his message? What was he going to say? What was going to be uh, the sermon that he was going to preach? There are some here today who have experienced salvation, who are willing and ready to serve, who find themselves knowing the Scriptures 
And yet when it comes to go time and you find yourself sitting next to uh, an individual who needs to hear the gospel, you don't have a clue of how to start your conversation. Now, I'm not into, and I know that there are some who may disagree with me, I'm not into some canned speech when it comes to uh, leading someone uh, to Christ. Uh, whether it's through a, uh, a set of uh, track uh, material or whatnot, mine is far more free-flowing. Just, I just want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my desire is to know what I'm going to say. In particular situations, what I'm going to articulate because it's important. I only may get only one opportunity with this individual, and I want to make sure I do it right. And yet so many of us think when the opportunity comes before us, I'll see it, and when I see it, I'll know what to say, and that usually isn't the case. We need to be ready. In fact, 1 Peter tells us this, 1 Peter chapter 3. Many of you know this passage. Uh, verse, uh, let's see here. Um, verse 15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Now listen to what he says. Always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What does it say? Always be prepared. I'm sure in the Greek it's the same as in the English. Be ready. Be prepared. We need to be prepared. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 19 says this. It says, uh, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Have you prayed that? That you would evangelize in such a way that when you open your mouth, the words that God has for you would be there. That you know what you're going to say, you know what you're going to articulate, and that you will witness accordingly. Paul did this. Paul wrote to the Roman church and he wrote like a lawyer sitting there dealing with the uh, judgment of the world and saying that we're lost in sin and dealing with all the major deep themes that come in the book of Romans. Yet when he goes to the uh, Philippian jail and the doors are opened up, remember Paul and Silas and are, in, are in jail in Acts 16 and, and the guy comes out after a major earthquake and he thinks all the prisoners uh, that are under his care have left and Paul and Silas say, we're all here. And he says, well, tell me more about the gospel. Tell me more why you wouldn't leave, why you were singing those hymns. And what does Paul say? He doesn't pull out the book of Romans. He says this in verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When you articulate to your children the gospel, don't pull out uh, the heavy themes of Romans and try to nail them with a theological lesson. Tell them that Jesus loves them that we're sinners and in need of being saved. And when it comes to that intellectual friend or coworker, that's when you bring out Romans. That's when you bring out the book and you say, let's have a deep theological, intellectual conversation about these things. But to be able to do that, either way, you have to know the Scriptures. There's a second thing that we have to be able to do, and that is we must be able to deliver the proper content there are weeks I love this microphone. There are weeks I want to throw it in the trash. This thing is a mess today. We must deliver the proper content. You know, there's a lot of people preaching what they call the gospel. In fact, you turn on Christian television today and you'll hear more about your uh, uh, right as a uh, new Christian to experience health, wealth, and happiness. That you should drive a new car. That you should have a large, a large uh, sum of cash in your pocket. And, and, and they'd say, this is the gospel. You believe Jesus, and this is what Jesus will give. Let me tell you something. That isn't the gospel. The gospel isn't that God will uh, take care of everything that you want if you come to know Him as, his, as your Savior. Nor is the gospel what we hear many times uh, in regards to uh, talk radio and to talk television. And that is that God is uh, found in all the major religions, whether it's through the Hindu religion or through the Islamic religion or through Christianity, that we all find God. And all we have to do is love our fellow man and do what is good and think positively about what we're a part of. And there we will find the answer. The good news. That is not the gospel. In fact, Galatians, Paul, the same Paul who would preach in Acts 9, articulates this truth in Galatians 1. Listen to what he says. 
in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we have preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. The idea there is to be anathema, to be damned. What he's saying is if we preach anything else than what's in the Word of God, the writings of the Apostle, anything else, whether it's an angel from heaven, whether it's your favorite preacher or favorite talk show host, if they utter anything that does, uh, that contradicts that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life, if they preach anything else, they're damning people to hell. Because what they're saying is untrue and it's leading people to a gospel that leads to nothing but damnation. We should run from that. We should fight against that. Well, how do we do it? We share the proper content. What does it involve? Look at what, what Paul preaches in, in chapter 9. He goes on and he says that at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Move down in the text at the last part of uh, verse 22. He preaches that he's the Son of God. And then it says that he grew more and more powerful and baffled Jews living in Damascus by proving Jesus is the Christ. There is your bookends. The gospel that we are to articulate, number one, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is God. The work of the gospel is to declare that Jesus Christ is not a man who attained Godship as, as is believed by Jehovah's Witness and uh, the Mormon uh, church in Salt Lake. Nor is it uh, the thought that Jesus Christ was a prophet, a good teacher who became a prophet alongside Muhammad and the other great prophets of the, uh, of the religion of Islam. We don't believe that. What Paul went and preached was said that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God is an incarnational title, which means that Son of God was the title that Jesus was given when he was here on earth. The title that said he was from God. But it's more than that because when uh, John speaks about Jesus in chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. If Jesus is the Son of God, then we must understand that He is God. Well, how do you say you get that from John 1, 1? Because the Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us, that we would behold the glory of the one and only the message that we should be articulating to the world is this Jesus, he isn't a good teacher, or he isn't just a good teacher, I'm sorry. He isn't just a good teacher. He isn't a prophet. He isn't a man who just seemed to achieve some things that we now can achieve too, and that is Godship, but that he was God in the beginning. Before time, there was God. The three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. We need to articulate to a dying world that Jesus Christ has no competition when it comes to who He is. The second thing is if we must focus in on the Savior, I just told you all that, we must focus in on the Savior, I missed that part. Second, it means that our journey of faith must be secondary. It means that our journey of faith must be secondary. I'm not talking about our capital campaign to build the building. But what I'm talking about is our testimony of how we came to know Christ. If we must focus it on the Savior, that is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I, I, I move too quickly here. Let me back up just a minute. He's the Son of God. And then it says that he was the Christ at the end of chapter 22. What does it mean that he's the Christ? He's the anointed one. It's the word that is uh, translated uh, into uh, Greek from the Hebrew. He's the Messiah. The second aspect of what we should articulate before we get to our testimony is that Jesus Christ is God and that God came and made his dwelling among us, that he lived a perfect life and that he was the Messiah that we had been waiting for. There's no one else coming. It is Jesus. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith because he is the one who endured the cross, the book of Hebrews tells us. And as a result of that, that is what Paul preach and it's what we should preach as well it must always focus in on the savior so that means our journey of faith should be secondary there are a lot of us who think that evangelism is is just the idea of telling our story to someone else 
But notice nowhere in the text does it say anything that Paul preached about his road on to, uh, the road trip to Damascus. I'm not saying that it's not in there. But to Luke, it's not that important because the message that he articulates is that Jesus is the Son of God and that his job was to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Why is it that testimonies that we have should be secondary? The reason why is that they're subjective. Uh, we have this experience that we have, and that's not a bad thing. It's like saying, uh, who do I love more, my wife or my children? They go hand in hand. But I would say, if I want to love my children, I better love my wife first. That's the first point of priority. And sadly, we as Christians find ourselves mixing up these priorities that we focus so much in on our journey that we forget to talk about Christ and who Christ is and what Christ has done, not just for us, but for everyone. And so what happens is when we talk about our story, people start thinking, wow, well, Tim's experienced a whole lot. And, and that's amazing. Well, that worked for him. Well, it didn't just work for me. But if I focus in on who I am and what I've experienced, then that person I'm preaching to or articulating to won't understand. I think of testimonies many times like this. I say testimonies can be one of two things. They can be like a NASCAR race. They go around and around in circle and they're full of crashes. Okay, some of you understand that. People get up and they start talking about their, their life and they're going around in circles of stories that they have and periodically there's crashes along the way. I got involved in this, I got involved in that and they just hammer away at those things that you find out this person was completely lost. Well, that's good to know, but the problem is he never was found. Or they're like the poem, Sugar and Spice and All That Is Nice. And they sit there and they talk about how, how great everything was before they came to know Christ. It's amazing what uh, Donald Bloss says, salvation must not be confused with humanization or rehabilitation as sociologists understand these terms. Rather, it should be equated with justification, sanctification, and this means that it primarily concerns man's relationship not to society, but to God. We must speak of our salvation as spiritual rather than temporal or secular or secular, if we are to do justice to the biblical witness. Are you articulating the gospel? Or are you telling your story? Make sure you start with the gospel. You can add your story to it, that's okay, but it must always be secondary. The next thing we see is that we must prepare for the challenges. You think you're going to go and articulate the message of Christ to a world that is perishing and they're not going to say anything about it? You think Paul was going to get up and, and start preaching Christ and all that had taken place uh, in his life and all that had been articulated all those years beforehand through the patriarchs and the prophets and that he wouldn't get up and experience uh, problems or challenges? We will. Notice what, what is said uh, in our text in verses 20, 21 and 22. We see the first challenge that we may face is that our past may cause us problems. Our past may cause us problems. We say, I'm going to go and I'm going to articulate Christ to the world around us. I've experienced Christ. I know the scriptures. I'm ready and I know what I'm going to say. And now, Lord, give me opportunities to articulate that to the people around me. And so you go out and you're a part of it. And the first people you're going to go talk with are the people that you know best, your friends. The problem is, is that you're a recent convert. And just a matter of a short month ago, you were out living it up, uh, drinking and, and uh, fraternizing with the opposite sex and, and speaking words that you shouldn't be and doing dishonest things. But, but all that's changed and now you're a Christian. That's what Paul is facing. Paul had a reputation. Look at what it says uh, in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now notice their response. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And didn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? They hear this guy who says he saw from Tarsus and they ask the question, wait a minute. Isn't he the one that says that raised havoc? Literally, what that means in there is literally destroyed, laid waste. Isn't this the enemy of Christianity? Isn't he the one that wanted to harm it? Now he's preaching for them. Now he's their big salesman. That doesn't work. 
We need to understand, especially those who uh, have uh, come to know Christ after a, a, uh, a longer life in adulthood, that your past may cause you problems when it comes to your evangelism. Not with God, because remember, when we are forgiven, God remembers our sins no more. But it's amazing that the infinite God can remember our sins no more, but finite man seems to forget everything else but remembers our sins. And so what happens? We get up and we preach, and they say, wait a minute, wasn't he the one that did that? One of my biggest fears when I said yes to preaching on an ongoing basis in the church that I grew up in was that my past would cause me problems. And you know what? At times it does. Because I don't have the luxury of telling lies. People know me. I can't get up and say I was smart. I can't get up and say that I was good. I can't get up and say that I didn't make stupid mistakes. Because some of you know that's not true. And there are some in my past who have who have uh, who were a part of this church and and who left for one reason because they were not able and I don't, I'm not bad mouthing them in one bit but they could not put the equal signs into what I remember of Tim here and life change that has taken place with Tim here that those are are good things and that caused me problems it caused me a lot of difficult conversations with people and if you have a past. It may cause you problems. Be prepared for it. It happened to Paul. It happened to him. They said, wait a minute, you've got a record. So does your preacher, I think. I'm not sure if that's been gone yet. It says later in the text, people, people were scared to have him around. He goes to hang out in Jerusalem and all the disciples say, nah, don't bring him here. We don't like that. Keep him away from the teenagers. But Barnabas comes in and says, hey, there's great things happening. This Saul is a changed man. We need to be a part of it. They were afraid of him because of his past. We need to recognize that as a challenge. But that's not too big because it says Paul grew from that and became more and more powerful because we need to understand that yesterday's power isn't enough. If you're going to be involved in evangelism, you can't rely on something that you got yesterday. There are some of us uh, today who are evangelizing and using the same material we learned in Awana or we learned in VBS that we've never grown out of. And so we sit there and we take uh, what we learned on how we should witness to appear a child uh, and we use that with adults. We sit there and we try to use uh, things that we've learned, the knowledge of Scripture. Some of us haven't memorized the Bible verse since we were in Awana, and now we're just beginning to now because our kids have to memorize them, and we find ourselves memorizing them as we go over and over those verses with our kids. Amen to that? Some of you are there. And yet that's not enough. Paul, it says, grew more and more in strength. That's physical strength, but I believe it's, it's a spiritual strength as well. You want to evangelize? You want to be powerful in your witness? Then start growing when it comes to your uh, knowledge and understanding of Scripture and being filled by the Holy Spirit and being prayerful and all those things that it talked about in weeks three through five, that we would be filled with the Spirit and that we would be a part of community. All those things come together so that we can have the power through the Spirit to change lives. Next we see proclaiming Christ takes guts. It takes guts. Proclaiming Christ. You go uh, into your workplace, you go into your school, you're going to be one of the few Christians in that place, I'm sure. Notice what it says in the text. He goes to the synagogues and he preaches to the Jews. Two very important things. The place that he goes, the synagogues. The synagogues are the house of worship for the Jewish faith. Not the Christian faith, the Jewish faith. Paul walks in as if you would, and let's say Paul entered into this uh, house of worship today. It would be like a, uh, a man from the Islamic faith coming into this place and saying, I want to interrupt you guys for a minute. I want to proclaim Muhammad and the Koran to you. Mm, tough crowd. That'd be like you sending me to the local mosque or the local synagogue of today and to go and preach Christ. You think I'm going to get a warm welcome? Probably not. 
It says that he preached to the Jews. Of all the people in the earth that, that had their faith, that had their understanding of Scripture, he goes to the Jews, those who had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who had Moses, those who had the law. They said, hey, we've got what we need. We don't need you to come and tell us that this Jesus is the, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. We've got it. What Paul did is he went to the enemy territory. He went to a place that would have had no desire to have him a part of it. And he preached Christ. It says that he did it boldly and fearlessly that he proclaimed the good news of Christ. Can that be said of us today? Do we shriek back from some opposition? Do we find ourselves falling back because we don't have the the guts that it takes to proclaim Christ to people that may not like what they hear. I like what C.T. Studd said. Some wish to live within, within the sound of a chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Which one do you like? Do you like the sound of the hymns that come from the church building? Or do you say, I want to plant myself where I may be the only Christian because I can have an opportunity to save sinners from their sin through the gospel? Next, we need, to pro- we need to understand proving Christ to others is a process. Verse 22, at the end of that verse, it says, Yet Saul grew more and more in power. He baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. How do you do that? Very quickly, write these three, three things down because of the shortness of time that I have. You want to prove Christ to others? It's a process. First of all, it involves the Word of God. Make the Word of God a big part of your life and make sure other people see it as well. Number two, walk in light of that word. So it involves the word, it involves your walk. Let people see that you are in the light. Let people see that you are, and and to taste that you are the salt of the world. Let them experience that. Not in a legalistic walking, but in a walk that shows grace, and it shows hope, and it shows that Christ has made an impact in your life. And finally, allow your witness Allow it to be witnessed. How do you do that? By articulating words that speak in light of how you've lived and in light of what the Word of God says. Does that mean we should be perfect? No, but we shouldn't act like we're perfect either. Finally, we need to understand persecution is inevitable. You're going to take the Word of God, you're going to take the Gospel of Jesus Christ to this world that's full of secularism, that's full of pluralism, that's full of um, uh, a private understanding of our own beliefs and faith, that it's, it's mine, it's not yours, where there is no absolute truth, and you're going to take the absolute truth of Jesus Christ as being the only way to God in heaven, and that the person must bow the knee to Jesus Christ and you don't think you're going to experience persecution? Jesus said, you preach me, you're going to experience persecution. You live as I live, you're going to experience persecution. You don't think we're experiencing it now? Watch CNN. Even watch Fox News. And what will you hear from the commentators? That those evangelicals that are starting to draw draw some lines uh, on the paper that say we can't negotiate in regards to this issue of morality or that issue of morality, you know what they begin to call us? bigots, fanaticals. You don't think that's the start of some persecution? My brothers and sisters, we are coming into a country that we will no longer experience home field advantage, if you will, but we will be a part of the greatest opposition that I believe this country has ever seen. And that's not to scare you, but that is for us to be prepared. Are you going to be man enough? Are you going to be woman enough? full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, that in light of persecution, it says in verse 23 that they desired to kill him, yet he kept preaching. He kept preaching. Let's say your head was on the, your face was on a wanted sign in your office because you uh, were told or people had told of you being a Christian. Would you be at work at eight o'clock tomorrow morning preaching Christ? My desire is that I would say yes. I I don't know. I haven't been put in that situation yet. But my desire is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, give myself fully over to God, and in doing so, when that persecution comes, that the Bible says we've been crushed, we've been knocked down from all sides, and yet the Bible says that they continued and continued and continued in light of all persecution to preach Christ and to do it without fear of what may happen. That's what we need to be doing. I want you to close your eyes for a moment as I close our time this morning. 
And I want us to just finish up with this. And it's a question. Are you sold out like Paul was to evangelize the world around you? Are you sold out for it? Are you sold out so much that you see the need around you? Whether in your family or in your work or with your friends or with the stranger you happen to sit next to at a game or on the train? Are you that fired up that you are looking for opportunities? Are you that fired up that because of your need to know the Scriptures that you're devouring them day in and day out? Are you that fired up about saving of souls that you would spend time in prayer praying for the neighborhood that you live in, praying for this church that you're a part of, praying for the ministries and the opportunities that you have uh, to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Are you that fired up to be a part of that that you would pray in such a way to ask for that? Are you that fired up that amidst any kind of opposition, whether it's laughter, being made fun of, being mocked, maybe losing a promotion, losing a bonus, losing a boyfriend or a girlfriend, losing a friend or, or an involvement at school, that you would be willing in light of all that, even if it meant losing your life, that you are so fired up for the gospel call that God has given us that you would say, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. That's what Paul recognized and that's what we should recognize as well. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, this is a solemn time where we we check our hearts and we recognize while we profess with our mouth in the company of other believers that you're the love of our lives, we find ourselves as Peter did, running away from servant girls who say, didn't you hang with him? Oh God, forgive us of our timidness. Forgive us of our hypocrisy. Forgive us of all uh, that we do to try to live this double life that says amen on Sunday and yet tries to walk in the shadows so that no one will ask what we did on Sunday. Oh, Lord, forgive us of that. Lord, it's our desire. It's our want. It's our hope that we would be able to proclaim you to the world around us. Father, that this church would be a place that evangelizes the lost that would reach out, that would not look at church as a place for us for and no more, but would open our arms and open our mouths to declare the gospel to those who even are different than us, who have different color skin, who speak different languages, Father, who may have diseases that we have no desire to to be a part of. Yet, Lord, because of your gospel call, that we would pursue it with all our hearts and we would seek and save those that are lost through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is what you've called us to. And Lord, this is what life change is all about. And so Lord, we ask for your Spirit's help to move us and to lead us, to give us the desire to be able to accomplish that so that you would be brought glory, you would be brought honor. And in in the end, Lord, that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be able to say and announce with all their hearts that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Amen.